Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we going to have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Welcome, everybody. We have a great episode for you today, uh, taking some pretty high-concept ideas and playing around with them a bit, having a little bit of fun, trying to look at uh, life a little bit differently, looking at information a little bit differently. I'm quite proud of this episode, and we are holding off on doing ads on this show. I've been dipping my toes in the water, but for now, we're holding off, and I really do want to make sure and re-emphasize that we always like plugging a nonprofit organization on the show. And this week's is the American Civil Liberties Union. So please check them out. You can always go to the herewearepodcast.com website. In an effort to keep these intros and outros a little bit shorter and also give you guys more content at the same time, I am now switching a bunch of stuff over to Patreon page. So You get to be a premium member if you sign up on patreon.com slash Shane Moss. Again, you can go to the Here We Are website to get more info about that. I'm going to be releasing the episodes without the intros and outros, uh, just the straight interview onto the Patreon page. On top of that, I'm writing things right now. I'm writing a piece, uh, just a little um, blog about how kind of Twitter has made myself and I think some other comedians and politicians just more shallow thinkers and in a in a way that I haven't seen expressed before so I'm working on putting that up there I'm working on uh, something you all should be interested in I'm listening back to old episodes oh so painful I hate hearing my own voice but you, you wouldn't think so. You'd think I, as much as I talk, you'd think I love hearing myself talk. But listening back, ah, why did I say that? Oh, I was so shy back then. Why didn't I have more confidence? Oh, I shouldn't have said that. I should have said this other thing. But I did it. And we have a podcast because I, I did it anyway. But now listening back, 
It's it can be a little brutal at times because I'm overly critical, but it's really magical experience. We talked a lot about reframing last week, and so I'm trying to upload onto the Patreon page just a fresh look at some of the old episodes. Starting with I, I've listened to I've now listened to ten minutes of the very first episode. And I've written like five pages. And so my hope is is that I'll grab a half a page of material that kind of makes sense in the context. And I think that you guys will dig and post it on there. Writing a little stuff of the evolution of the cat call. And uh, what some of those evolutionary underpinnings might be for such a ridiculous act that seemingly has very little genetic utility, I guess I could say. And so just fun things like that is what I'm hoping to put on Patreon. I hope you guys enjoy it. Let me know what you think. I still need to figure out exactly how to post things on Patreon and then how to open it up so you guys can ask questions yourself and leave comments. But I think it might be a way that we can, I don't know, just add a little something extra and I can be more interactive with you guys, the fans, the listeners, and help you guys become contributors as well. I think that would really benefit the podcast as a whole. So check that out uh, if you want. And if you're not interested and you just want to listen to the podcast and that's that, I totally understand. You're broke. You don't have the $1 to $20 to $1,000 per month. That yeah, maybe you have two dollars. A thousand dollars would be crazy. But maybe if you have two to five dollars per month. All right. I'm just kidding around. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm getting awkward. I'm trying to make awkward cool. Um I think it's I, I don't think that I'm the leader in that. I, I think I'm trying to follow the trend of awkward becoming cool because I feel like I have a a clear path. into that world so anyway here i am trying to make these intros shorter and you get me going i'm blabbing on and on awesome episode today i'm so excited for you guys to hear it Uh, like i said i recorded this in an exceptionally manic state and i'm glad that i did because i thought it came out real cool i hope you guys enjoyed it as much as i like making it talk to you on the other side are we yes where are we here why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. So there are these software programs that you can install on your computer that, that will restrict your access to the internet. And you know, you, you set it up and you hit, you hit go and it'll lock you out for an hour. And there's probably some magic combination of keys you can press to get emergency access or something like that. But the idea is to prevent you from reading the news or getting on social media and seeing what people are saying on Twitter or Facebook or anything like that. And you know, for some people, this is exactly what they need because that allure, that attraction of having you know the phone nearby or the laptop nearby, like they just can't keep away from it. Um, and so having this kind of software helps them regulate themselves. So it's a, it's a meta sort of thing that they do to keep themselves focused on the task. And I've never, fa- I've never had a use for these things. I've never had a problem with unplugging or turning it off and being like, I'm going to work on something for six hours today and I'm not going to check the news and I will do that. Wow. Well, we are opposing opposites here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I am a, I am the most addictive person you'll ever meet. <laughs> But I'm really good at pu- pushing it all the way to the edges and then finding 
usually a difficult road back to yeah. the center. Um, but I, uh, I mean, everybody uh, is different is the thing. And so I'm, I'm glad that, that the friends of mine who told me about this, these software uh, solutions have found them because it, it clearly seems to help them you know, stay productive and manage their interaction yeah. with the internet. Do you know any uh, off the top of your head, any names of them? Oh, I don't use them, so I don't know yeah, any of them. Yeah. <laughs> I can right. tell you which of my well, friends you use tell them. tell your though. friends and then they have, uh, you email me later <laughs> and I'll share it with, uh, with them. I mean, I think, I think the important thing with these things is to recognize that, you know, we're all different and we will find different solutions to being productive. Some of that will be, we have rituals, like we, we read the news in the morning while we're drinking our coffee and then we don't touch it again until the end of the day. Um, some, Crazy people, you're even like, I'm not going to do email at all until you know the end of the day, and I spend one hour doing it. And if I don't get it done in that hour, it doesn't get done. And these are these are very strong, like you know, self control type things. I'm not um, one that tight. Yeah, and and other people, you know, they find some other solution. They have a software program or or whatever. And and I I think that the neat thing about this topic is that you know we're all trying to learn how to live productively uh, and meaningfully. Uh, in the context of all this stuff around us, all this information and all this distraction, and we're each going to find some personalized solution to, de to dealing with these things. My advantage is that I get bored exceptionally easy. And so I can like get into something and go, God, give it all to me. And then I'll get to the end and be like, yeah, whatever. I'm done with that now. Like I've just done that with many, many things in my life. And then I go back to the center and then I look for what my next fix is. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of people are like that <clears throat> in different ways, right? So so I do that with science to some degree. I'm, I get very easily bored with a topic and I get fascinated by new things. And as a result, the set of topics that I do research on is really diverse. And it's because, you know, somebody comes to my office and says, here's a problem that I think is interesting. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds really interesting. And, you know, two years later, I might write a paper on it. Um, and that's cool. I like learning about other parts of science uh, as, as a way of just learning about the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is interesting because I've never started a podcast this way. This is episode, I don't know. It's a, we're in the hundreds and, 130s somewhere. So I'm sneaking up on three years here. And uh, I had kind of a bit of shift in perspective recently. I mean, I've been, I've just been kind of wanting to take it to the next level a little bit. So I've been going around gathering all this information, kind of getting it in these nice little digestible bites. And now I kind of want to explore how the patterns within information systems themselves. And so this is just all kind of all of a sudden seemingly happening. Things are coming together all at the right time. Very strange. And uh, so... So I'm here, normally what happens is I walk in, I go, how would you like me to introduce you? And then uh, you tell me, and then I butcher it over and over again, and we do it like 10, the audience never gets to hear that. You sa were saying something interesting, so the first time I'm like, I'm going to hit record right now. Aaron, why don't you introduce yourself this time? My name is Aaron Clausett. I'm a professor of computer science at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and I work on a lot of different things. It's all fun. I, I'm a scientist by orientation. Um, my background is in physics and computer science. So most of what I do when I'm doing my research is using the computer as a laboratory or a microscope or a telescope or some kind of measurement tool in order to understand 
what are the patterns that complex systems, whether they're social or biological, exhibit? How can we we characterize and describe that complexity? And then what are the processes that generate it? So even though my background is very technical, I'm very oriented towards solving real scientific questions in social systems or biological systems. Mm. So, and this is kind of something I've been thinking a lot about. And so I I haven't really, uh, physics was one of the first things that caught my attention when, when in my adult life, I, I was kind of what I would read on my off time, but it's been a while. Um, I kind of moved on. I, you know, saw the, uh, or I, yeah, I read brief history of time 15 years ago, you know, like everyone, uh, which is mandated by, right. And, but it's been a while. I'm going to need some brushing up a little bit. And um, I've been thinking a lot about these concepts when it comes to information and how we observe it, how we share it, how we process it, how we receive it. So uh, you and I are these two computers right now sharing information and processing information at the same time. And then there's a recorder here. And then there's another receiver going out into this other like a huge network of th- and that's kind of like unimaginable to imagine every little piece, but you can kind of get a sense of, you know, people I'll, I'll go in and someone like you will be like, what, what is your demographic? Like what is, you're trying to build a shape of a model of this listener of this supercomputer that we're talking to, um, that this, this network, um, that, that has more, that is this connection of more crazy connections than we are. Right. And so, so I'm trying, I'm going to try to share, get information from you by also sharing information that I have the way that I'm perceiving it. And then we both have to understand that there's going to be an insane amount of noise in there. So what, Ever ideas I'm trying to share with you are being muddled by my horrible vocabulary, and I not haven't read enough of every field that I would need to articulate these things, and 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 uh, you know we have these many limitations of consciousness. So, and then as we combine, <laughs> potentially combine our ideas and pass them on. So then to do that, we have to imagine. So we're trying to send information to this network. You got to imagine how that system receives information and what are its properties. And so science is like you kind of create the story, which is a model. Kind of? Am I close to that? And well, then you're kind of testing it. What I'd say is, so, so there's um, there's a new book that just came out recently a biography of Claude Shannon, who is nominally the father of all information technology. Mm-hmm. He invented what we call information theory, which is the mathematics of, of counting how much information is in anything. And the math, this mathematics is what allows you to send information across a computer network. It's what allows emails to be sent. Um, it, it's what allows the, the, um, uh, any of the, of the landers on Mars to communicate with us. You know, they, they beep at us and radio, radio frequencies and they beep in a certain pattern. And then the receiver on earth can listen for that pattern and then reconstruct an image or, or text or anything like that from it. And information theory is what, what governs all this. It tells us how to do these kinds of things. 
And um, th this new this new book um, is a wonderful biography of Claude Shannon, and it it sort of explains how he came up with the mathematics of these things. People have been thinking about this for a long time, but once the mathematics was invented, then we could start creating things like cell phones and modern computers and all this crazy stuff. And so um, there's a class that I teach at University of Colorado called the History and Future of Computing. I teach it very rarely because it's a small seminar course. Um, I make These are CS majors who take the class. It's about 15 of them. I make them read stuff and I make them write essays and we talk about things in class. So there's not much programming, mm -hmm. but the topic is technology. And we start in ancient history, thinking about information and computing. And we go up through Charles Babbage and the Difference Engine, and we talk about Ada Lovelace and the first programming stuff. By the way, I, I don't, I've never read any of this stuff. So it, okay, like, I'm, okay. I'm a five-year-old coming to you right now. So you need to figure so we, okay. out how to explain these complicated ideas. To okay, give, give me a couple minutes then. Sure. So, so we start in ancient history. We talk about how how language itself is a technology because it allows us to formalize thoughts and communicate them to another individual. And that individual can receive those ideas and store them and repeat them and modify them and so on. So verbal language is a kind of technology for transmitting information. And then we talk about how writing is also a kind of technology and information technology because writing allows you to take an idea and send it either across space by writing on a piece of paper and putting it in the mail, for instance, or across time, you write something on a piece of paper and you put it in a book or you put it in a, in a drawer, you come back to it in a year and you can get a sense of what you were thinking. So you've just sent a message to yourself in the future by writing it down. And writing revolutionized human civilization for sure because of the ability to transmit information across time and space. Not backwards in time, unfortunately, but you know, forwards in time. So, so we start, the class starts there and then we move forward to you know, 1700s, 1800s, we talk about the first conceptualizations of, of computers. So Charles Babbage was, he was a wealthy Englishman and he got a large grant from the British military at the time to build this mechanical computer. So we think about computers as being these digital devices with chips and circuits and things like that and then that run electricity. And Babbage's computer was built out of wood and metal. And it was a remarkable thing. Maybe you've seen these pictures of mechanical calculators, these, these massive objects and got gears turning and things flipping. And, and the effect of all of those gears and levers and things is to do the, the computation of adding numbers or dividing or multiplying and so on. But it's a big physical object. And he wanted to build an even bigger one that would do a set of calculations the military would find useful. And um, his partner in crime in this was Ada Lovelace, who was a, a brilliant young mathematician, um, and she was the first computer programmer. The two of them um, uh, worked on this idea of a general purpose computer. This was you know, 200 years before um, we had any kind of general purpose computer um, in general, uh, and yet these two individuals were thinking about how could we program a computer to solve any task. And Ada Lovelace was the first person to think about programming a computer to do something like that. So they, these were really the beginnings of the information revolution. And it happened back when steam power was the best thing we had going. So as time moved through the 1800s, a lot was changing in information technology. And individual people started to feel the effects of this technological advance. Um, there's a thing I do in the class where we talk about the speed of information. So at the beginning of the of the uh, nineteen hundred of the eighteen hundreds, if you wanted to send a letter to somebody, you would write on a piece of paper and you'd give it to a guy on a horse, 
and the guy on the horse would ride <laughs> some number of miles and then deliver the information. And we can you can write down sort of how many bits it would take um, to to write that letter. Maybe it's a thousand bits, maybe it's a million bits. It doesn't matter. It's some number. And the speed of the information is how many hours it takes for that letter to be transmitted, um, however many miles it's going. So the speed of information was constrained by the speed of a horse, essentially. And over the 1800s, then you started having things like steam engines, um, and uh, then things could move faster. Right? You could put a lot of letters in a bag, and you put the bag on a train, and the train could go across the country. And Can I stop you for one second right yeah. there? I'm just I'm just looking at the flow of this in my mind, and with so most of my listeners are familiar with um, a lot of evolutionary theories. That's a lot of what we started with because it makes sense to kind of go back and start there, and uh, and so there's this idea of uh, rather than these gradual little a horse gets faster and then you feed it more and you get a bigger horse and it and and then you train it more and you figure out and then you give it steroids and it's going faster and you're getting this information a little faster and then all of a sudden there is just this switch this change of seeing something that takes things to the next level uh which would be this kind of punctuated equilibrium and then you start over again so this is the way that information transportation anyway has seemed to evolve yeah you can certainly think of it that way that for a long time horse horses were how things went around and then um we invented some new modes of transportation we had trains now and so you could use those to move information and then a bit later you would have you know automobiles became more popular and they became faster and then you have airplanes so each time there's still use... each level's doing the same thing like it's kind of following the same formula yeah just scaled up right to some degree i mean i think i in a qualitative sense that's not a bad not a bad way to think about it um but the point i wanted to make about the 1800s is that is that the speed of information increased by several orders of magnitude. So at the beginning of the 1800s, your sense of how big the world was was really about how much information was coming to you from different parts of it. And there wasn't much. It came very slowly and it came in a trickle. And then over the 1800s, through the advance of technology, in particular through the network, through the telegraph system. So now you can start transmitting information across electrical wires. And now information is constrained by how fast signals can go on wires, which is a lot faster than a horse, a lot faster than a train. And so at this point, people started sending messages to family members hundreds of miles away in a given day and getting a response in the same day. And so that acceleration of the rate of communication by a factor of 100 meant that at the beginning of the 1800s, people thought the world, you know, the world felt pretty small. My corner of the world was very distant from another corner of the world. But that by the end of the 1800s, before right before World War One, essentially the whole country was networked, and everybody had some sense of what was going on in every other part of the country. And this was revolution. Like people's conceptualization of what the world was like changed over the course of of one to two generations because information became so much faster. There's more of it. You were getting more of it every day. They could get responses from across the country in a day. These things could never be considered by their parents or grandparents. And people start to, in these newer generations that have access to that, tend to empathize more and more, not not necessarily in a feel-goodery 
woohoo kind of way in a just understanding things on a bigger and bigger level. Yeah, there's a there's a common sort of funny thing to say about technology, which is, quote unquote, technology is anything that was invented after you're like 15. Right? Yeah. So if you grow up with something, it's just how the world works. And it's yeah. totally true. People who are born today, my, my two daughters, for instance, they will never know a world without without streaming media and Netflix and and cell phones and things like that. And these things will just seem normal to them because they've always known them. They've never not known a world without these things. And the internet will seem totally natural to them too. Whereas to my grandparents who spent the vast majority of their lives without the internet, you know, the internet was this weird new thing. My grandmother, before she passed away, had gotten onto email only because it was a way for her to communicate with the grandkids. So she wanted to send photos and get photos. That was what she wanted the internet to do for her. But she never really tapped into the enormous power that comes from having essentially like all of human knowledge at your fingertips on your phone 24 hours a day. Like that's immense power yep. that someone from her generation would never have dreamed of. Look at something like uh, India where it used to be this big expensive mission to go and get this resource of like spices or whatever from from there and it would take forever and people are dying and there's all these connections being lost along the way and and uh where where now it's almost easier just to be like here just let's just send it over there let's let's have them do it like this uh, this little bit of information oh, yeah. that, we, that we need let's just have that process it just zap it over there quick we're on to bigger things that's right and that's all enabled by this this information technology that works essentially at the speed of light information can can travel as quickly as light can carry it and that makes the world a lot smaller right and instead of sending it down the street to your friend who runs the technology shop or whatever that you're going to outsource to you send it to your friend in india who it takes the same amount of time for the thing to get to India as it did to get down the street a hundred years ago. Um, and then there's, it seems like there's a lot of scalability, not that there is a perfect overlap with any of this because, because how could, because there seems like there's this, um, feedback and then this reappraisal. So you get your message to yourself from the past and now you now you have new information and then you look at it and you have it a different lens at it and then you go so as a receiver to information you have to not just be listening to the morris code beep, 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 but the context of what what do they mean what are they trying to say so don't necessarily listen to each individual word but try to get a sense of what the meaning is so the basis of shannon's insight for information theory was the notion that <clears throat> there's a sender a receiver and a channel the channel is the thing that carries the information from the sender to the receiver. And um, the channel is usually noisy. You know, there's there's um, thermal noise in the wires and cosmic rays and all that sorts of stuff. Um, any form of noise that can corrupt the message is part of the channel. The sender has a message they want to send. They have to encode it in some way. They send it across the channel and the receiver gets this encoded version, a bunch of beeps, and they have to then decode it. And there are Around the time the information theory was created, uh, there was a series of of um, meetings and conferences in which people were so excited about this notion of information theory, they wanted to know how it could be applied to anthropology and, and biology and essentially every field. And the, the social sciences um, settled upon one idea, which was which is very interesting, which was the idea that if the sender and the receiver are using different models mm -hmm. of the message... Yeah 
then the sender can send one thing and the receiver can hear something totally different from what the sender meant to send. Right. And, and so in order to have uh, error-free transmission, you have to synchronize the interpretation that what the sender thinks they're sending, the receiver also is expecting to hear something like that. And if you're using different kinds of decoding schemes, then you might, so the sender might say something and the receiver might think that it's something totally different. And so these, you know, things can get lost in translation in some sense because there's uh, all these signal errors and because they're using different languages errors. to understand the sort of the same ideas. And people talk about this in politics a lot, right? You know, politicians will give a speech and if you look at the text, like, okay, fine, that's the text. But one audience will hear one thing in the text and a different audience will hear a different thing because they interpret the same words differently. Okay. So you're sending it and then it's getting muddled by all this all this noise and and these two these two the sender and receiver are crashing against each other and kind of creating this new thing um but and it's sort of confusing but if you kind of reverse that if you just reverse the flow the the dynamics of the information it's coming together with more clarity and so like say there's say that the way that evolution evolves is so you have this packet of information and it can clone itself but then it's there's these there's these errors along the way and okay and then some of them are beneficial and and then it builds and then it gets a little more complicated and a little more complicated and again this network gets bigger and then eventually you have these viruses come along that are really really quick and challenging and can really take advantage of this larger system and then this these larger systems eventually stumble upon this strange kind of counterintuitive idea that doesn't seem like it's in its interest but seems to work to evade these viruses and what was that in evolution uh, that that went from cloning to a new kind of information People think about replication. Yeah. And so that was too different. So if our idea were life and we each had two different ideas or send a sender and a receiver, a male and a female, and then they replicate, then it's creating information of its own that is then going out and living its own weird life in some space that we don't understand <laughs> i'll i'll I'm, I'm i'm anthropomorphizing now i'm anthropomorphizing a big network of uh, okay so just to make things a little simpler yeah um but anyway go on and well and, i was gonna uh, say that people uh, catch pe- catch me where i'm failing here pe- people have also applied information theory to to biology and right. um in in biology all the information is is uh, in the traditional perspective, is stored in the genome. So your genes are are a digital code. In fact, you know the the um, the nucleotide CATG. It's a it's a like a binary code. It's got four things instead of two, but it's essentially a code. And um, <clears throat> that genome contains all the information that, that describes a person and uh, or any organism. And that information is only transmitted um, vertically through reproduction. Uh, there are, we know of now, there are some species that transfer information horizontally. So bacteria, for instance, can share genes. If you tickle a bacteria in a certain way, it'll, it'll squirt out a gene. So and this another, is just adding a third dimension. 
Yeah. So, so I'm sorry. Continue because now I'm interested. I just zoned out for a second and saw a pattern. So if you if you tickle a, a bacterium in a certain way, um, sometimes it'll squirt out a gene or a group of genes. And another bacterium, if you tickle that in a certain way, will suck them up out of the medium between them. And that's a way for genes to move from one bacterium to another without going through reproduction. But most species like mammals, um, plants, things like that, it typically transmit information, their genome vertically, meaning they reproduce. And so... The, the that transmission of information means that that things don't get modified in crazy crazy ways. Instead, the modifications have to come through mutation or through sexual recombination or other kinds of of gene modification processes. Um, and one really big difference between biological evolution and what we think of today as as cultural evolution is that in biology, the information packages are segregated from each other, meaning you can't take a tomato plant and a, a, a cat and mash their genes together and get something that works mm -hmm. because the biological rules say that right. that's going to be dead. Um, whereas you can take an idea from physics and from computer science, and you can mash those things together, and you can get an idea that also works. And as a result, in what we think of as cultural evolution, these packets of information, sometimes they're called memes, um, uh, these things can be recombined and split off and differentiated and modified in much crazier ways than in biology. And so in some sense, the tumult of information dynamics is sort of faster um, in cultural spaces. We're talking about ideas and things like that yeah. than in biological spaces. The timescales in biological evolution are much longer because right. information is segregated from each other. Right. Um, but there's these, still this feedback. So you go in and uh, tell your students, um, you know, you teach your students, you deliver this message and then you sit around and talk. And then all of a sudden they start coming up with new things based off that information that's informing you. And so you have, so we're talking about binary systems. So you have this sender and receiver and there's all sorts of noise and noise is this wave to get all woo-hooey and take misinterpreted information from the past. So you have this yin and this yang, and then, and but this doesn't make sense. There's so much gray area everywhere. There's so much noise. And so what if there's, what's the reverse of that would be a yang and a yin. And if you reverse that, that wouldn't be black and it wouldn't be white. There'd be this perfect overlap of gray and then it would have that shape to it which would look like uh, much like a dna strand and um and then now so you've now just added another dimension and but you're so now you're observing the third dimension so you're the observer so now look around at what you're looking at. Now from this angle, it looks like this DNA strand. But if you're looking from over here, it looks like this. If you're looking from the side of it, it looks like a Fibonacci spiral is what it will look like. And so if you're trying to examine it, you're looking and it looks like it's going all the way down to zero and you don't know what happens after that but the same thing just repeats and it explodes um out the other end of it it's creating this vacuum so then if you 
So then if you change the dynamics of that information, rather than trying to chase down where that information is going, if you reverse the flow and look at it, instead of going down to zero, it's going out toward you, toward infinity. So I was looking at the DNA spinning around and thinking about gravity and thinking about what noise is, and noise is a wave, a vibration. And so, like, if DNA were, like, this spinning, like, rudder or something like that, it would be seemingly creating this noise. Or if you put it in reverse, like, if if you watched a, uh, a windmill that's grabbing this, or, or the, the water mill or whatever, that's grabbing this flow and creating energy, you could also use energy to create this, this wave, this rippling effect. <laughs> I'm still lost. You're still lost? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. That, no, don't worry about it. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm my, uh, just imagine that, <laughs> that I have no idea what I'm saying. <laughs> go with me if you can if you can possibly imagine that so i have no idea what i'm saying but somehow there's still something coming out that there's a bit of truth to i i had kind of this idea recently where i, I just re-examined i just took the opposite of everything that i thought was crazy my entire life and looked at it, I didn't look at it as truth, I just looked at it as a separate side of a puzzle that was informing the whole and something that had been lost. And that's when I started seeing these kind of different formulas in my head. Um, and so that's what I'm going to attempt to articulate to you. But for now, let's take a break from from this. <laughs> <laughs> let's take let's take a break from this craziness and uh let's back up a little bit so so what what do we know about these cysts how are they so you're saying these are much different than the way biological systems seem to be working these information systems in, information is in both systems so in, we, in a social system information is ideas and practices in a biological system um, information is in the dna typically right. um you can think about information as being in other parts of of an organism organism as well but it's simpler to think about it in terms of the dna and and, and the dynamics of of the way dna changes and species change Information theory says something about that. It has something to say about it, but but it doesn't say the same things about that as it does about the way information in social spaces mm -hmm. changes over time. So how are the social spaces, um, in, in what ways are the social spaces different? Mainly because ideas can be recombined with each other very quickly. Um, and, you know, here you and I are, are talking here about, about various things and we're exchanging ideas. Um, I'm transmitting information to you. It's, it's traveling through... Uh, through the air to your ears, um, and you're receiving that and interpreting it, and you're taking that information and combining it with other things you already know. So inside each of our heads, when we're reading something or talking to somebody about something or watching something on on uh, on the computer or on TV, information is is being combined with things we already know in interesting ways. Sometimes we just discard it, right? We just forget whatever we saw 
10 minutes ago on TV because that's sort of what we want to do. Yeah. Other times we're, we're looking for new information. We're trying to figure out a problem. We're searching for something online and we're looking for a piece of information that we will combine with what we already know. And it's that combination process. Each of our heads is in some sense a, a cauldron of information in which we're mixing things up and, and new ideas can emerge out of that cauldron. Whereas in biology, the cauldrons are not individual species. They are like entire ecosystems. And they're the way information changes, the DNA changes over time. There are stronger rules to the way that happens. There are fewer rules in the social spaces. And the species influence the environment as well. Um, Just as ideas influence their environments. Right. Um, so, so to receive, to hit this sweet spot of, of uh, getting kind of a... Uh, attention i guess would be a way to get information to go through this kind of narrow channel um what what little bits of it can can make it through you're having this kind of venn diagram of this over here is to uh, these there's there's several ways in which you wouldn't be interested why you're not accepting this information. One is that it's you don't have the tool set to understand it just yet. The other is it's so incredibly boring. And, and so it's like behind you or behind you so far that you can't even see it. And then there, there is this nice little sweet spot that you're, we're always, um, I mean, as someone that has to communicate complicated ideas to uh massive people i think about this all the time of like where what is i'm always going to lose some people no matter what so what is the sweet spot you well know? <clears throat> i mean in order to understand a new idea you have to have some reference points and if right. you if context you, yeah exactly you have to know what some of the words mean you have to know how they connect together um, what things are implied by certain combinations of words so for instance, if I were to give you a lecture on advanced algorithm theory, um, it probably wouldn't make much sense to you because you don't understand that language. You don't know what those words mean. Whereas somebody who has taken the prerequisite courses, for instance, for that material, um, you know, they've built up that language already so they can speak it and they can understand what's being said. The same thing as if I started speaking German to you. I don't know if you speak German or not, but assuming you don't, um, you wouldn't have much of a notion of what I was saying. You might pick up a word or here or there because there are similarities between English and German, but for the most part, it would be gobbledygook to you. So being able to understand what the words mean, that's definitely a key part of being in that sweet spot. And the other part, I, I think you made a really good point that attention is a key part of it. Mm -hmm. That if we're, if we're bored by something, it doesn't matter if we speak the language, um, we're not going to pay attention to it. And that's something that is really interesting about sort of today's environment with, with information and and social media and so on is that uh, we live in an environment where information we're saturated with information so there's more to it there's more information around us than we could ever possibly pay attention to and as a result we have to be selective we have to filter out certain things in order to attend to things that we think are more important so that means that we're we're managing what we actually let into our heads we're saying, I'm not going to read that newspaper. I am going to read that news, this other newspaper. I'm, I'm not going to listen to this person. I am going to listen to that person. That kind of, of management is something that we, we've always, humans have always done that kind of thing. But the load is so much bigger today because there's this cacophony of information that we live in uh, at all times. Whereas 200 years ago, before information became quick, before it accelerated, 
Um, people lived in an information poor environment. They were starved for news about what was going on overseas or what was going on in the capital. And if somebody came to town with a message of something, <laughs> yeah, just the most exciting, thing. everybody was excited about right. it because, because they were desperate for news. And that, that's also like why we like built up at the time, like these politicians were incredible because they were these people that would arrive on horseback, these messengers from afar from this unimaginable space with information that you're desperate to know <laughs> and today i think most of us feel like we're smarter than the politicians we know more we're more in touch with things right and that totally changed the dynamic so so what was it though it's the past seems dumb and the future seems unattainable or crazy or just impossible impossible in the way of impossible to predict and so the sweet spot is like kind of in the present, which is this fluid thing. We always think changing. the sweet spot is where is when we're alive because that's what we're used to. Oh no no no! I'm not saying that. I'm not saying this year. I'm not saying right now this year with a timestamp. I'm I'm looking at the 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 in a person's lifetime. The the formula that is like passing through time. Like I'm looking at the sliding scale of, so, so now take that, um, now take that, um, uh, um, oh man, I'm, I'm, my brain's falling apart all of a sudden. The, the uh, I, I just said it a second ago, I know this word very well, the Venn diagram. And, and then if you're using this Venn diagram to examine information, like scanning through it with the past to see what's useful for you and going forward to the future to see what's relevant, then you're kind of pushing this eye of the present through time. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> sort of. Sort of. <laughs> Look, so I think that I can potentially... for draw all of this for you and so i've been thinking of how to say this on a podcast because i really enjoy challenges um and, yeah yeah you got to translate it into a verbal medium as opposed to a picture yeah which, yeah which is an information problem right right how do you convey the the picture that's in your mind through this right. noisy channel of words right, right, right. so that your readers your listeners also have that same picture in their mind exactly and the best communicators we, we all know these people when we hear them talk because yeah. because they speak clearly and we feel like we have that we can see into their head yeah and they they have a very good way of translating of, of encoding what's in their head so that it also gets interpreted and appears in our head yes so what what kind of information like I asked in the beginning is this mass network after if you look at the patterns of what they're into it's not that different than what science is into it's you're creating they're after a story uh, like a kind of a hypothesis and then they're trying to build a model like this exemplar um and then and then they're they're putting on this role they they want to see this from as many different angles so they're they're watching these many different roles on tv and these models and magazines that they're then there's all these people also creating noise and picking apart and ripping them apart like science does and 
and creating a new thing like there's the next new hot idea that and it's it's like the system is pushing the the thing forward it's like the system's creating justin bieber it's not that justin bieber is special it's that the idea of justin bieber at that moment in time is what this system wants to see and wants to test and wants to look at i don't know if i would if i would describe intention or can, can or you agency. use only justin bieber metaphors I, through I, the rest of the show i'm, I'm sorry <laughs> well what, what's really what's really funny is that i use justin bieber as examples in some of my classes are you serious yes and i and i know that this is a moment spooky this is a moment in time in which uh, those jokes will make sense to the students yeah, right. because like people still know justin bieber is yeah, yeah but in about five years he'll be too old and so 19-year-olds won't know who Justin Bieber is anymore. But it will fit the context of what we're saying even better. Because if they're listening to this in the past, and then they're like, we don't know who that guy is because he has since become irrelevant. And then they'll understand exactly what we're saying, <laughs> which is, see the layers? There's many, many layers of... <laughs> of this and the scalability. So just it's, it's just all I'm doing is playing around with ideas that's all i'm taking all i'm doing is flipping things and playing around and then looking from a different and that okay there's two sides of the things so this looks very binary now pull out and look at the full picture now you have a different point well what is that different point of view it's a third dimension okay now how do you play around in that third dimension how do you run the camera through and look at the pattern in it First, you need a picture of a steady state, which is impossible other than in our minds we can do that. We can imagine the perfect ideal of what a computer is. It's, it's going to be different in everyone's mind. And then you can explore it. I'm losing myself right now. I was really close for a second there. I'm going for it today, and so I'm going to get lost here along this journey. Uh, but we'll come back. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, okay. Well, you, you were let, saying let, let, me, the let me, let me jump off of something yes. that you just said. So, yep. so this notion of, of, of things being different in different people's heads, like that, there's a lot of things that that's very true about. Like all, we each have our own sort of perception of ourselves, which is different from how anybody else perceives us. Um, but there are things that, that are sort of universal truths, the things that we all agree upon are, are real. And, and in some sense, the goal of science is to identify those things so that, that all of our minds have a few things right. that are exactly the same across them. We all understand what gravity is. We all understand what, what light is and what the sun is and how the solar system works. Like those are really basic facts that should be the same in everyone's minds. And things like, you know, what you think of Justin Bieber, like everybody has a different opinion on that. And that's fine because that's not a scientific fact, but gravity is. So there's sort of two categories of things. And, and so the goal of science is to, is to make more of the things we all agree on and usually stay away from things that are, that are mostly opinions. However, there are people who study sort of the, this is, I'm going to abuse some language here, uh, the physics of ideas. And these are people who try to understand how, how does this churn of information, does it have any predictable patterns to it? And it's not going to be, as you, you were saying, a churn of information. 
it's not going to be as you were saying that information is being churned yes a little while ago until you get butter <laughs> <laughs> right until it congeals until it congeals which is this and weird you, gray you spread area. it on a piece of toast and That's you eat it solid and, and then so so um uh, no, I just lost the thread of. I'm I'm so thought. sorry. We're on track no, no, it's here. Fine. It's just all of this is a model. All of this is a metaphor. Math is a oh, right. metaphor. So people who study sort of the physics of ideas, the way the way they move around between people and change over time, they're not thinking about any individual idea. So as you were saying before, you know, Justin Bieber is an example of right. a class of things, and that class of things are these you know celebrity pop stars, and. Um, what they study instead is the class as opposed to the individual member. Right. You're, it's a, the formula, not the variable. That's, right. That's like, right. Like I'm putting X is pop star Justin Bieber right now e- equals X. That's but right. It can be. That's yeah. right. And, and indeed, you know, 15 years ago, I wouldn't have made jokes in my classes about Justin Bieber. It would have been Britney Spears. Yeah, you're, I'd say you're falling a little behind the time. And I think we're both getting a little old if we're still using Justin Bieber. And we should maybe start really thinking about catching I'm, up I'm told that I should make jokes about um, Ariana Grande. I think I pronounced her name correctly. Oh, I'm not, I mean, you can't I've, even I've tell I've heard me. the name. I've heard the name. <laughs> yes. Um, or maybe I'm so far into the future with music because I'm listening to like Deltron 3030, which is literally meant to be music from the year 3030, but it was made 10 years, 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> I'm skipping around through space and time. Um, all right. Well, if that so, music was made 30 years ago, the reason you can listen to it now is because of information theory, because we were able to take that signal, which was a series of vibrations in the air translate it into a new language which was um probably initially it was on a on a record and so it was a bunch of of um crevices carved into a wax record and then that was probably then read off of it and translated into a a binary format on the computer and so each of these is a different language but now that we have these ability to write things down and using information theory and record them you can listen to messages sent from the past which is i mean I was telling a friend of mine, we were on our run this morning about this science fiction book that I, I really enjoy, not because it's great science fiction, but because it was written before World War II. And this was before, for instance, plate tectonics was discovered. Before World War II, it wasn't known that the continents move. And it's kind of weird to think about what life would have been like if nobody knew the continents moved because we all just know that that's true these days yeah and so this well we don't all know but okay (laughs) science says that right right and all the scientists agree (laughs) what's cool about there's information out there doesn't mean everyone's receiving it necessarily yes precisely so what i love about this book is that it was written by a science fiction writer so it was a view of the future but it's from it's from 90 years ago And that's fascinating, right? I can peer inside this person's head from 90 years ago and get a sense of how they looked at the world, all because they wrote down their ideas. They wrote down these things. And it's a super cool book. It's called The, the First and Last Men. Hmm. And I bet they were off on the details. See, the details are what's all wrong. But the formulas, people can get the formulas right. It's just the details. You're, if you take snapshots of where of the state at a certain time we're pattern recognizing machines you mix them all up people can put those slides in the right order they won't be able to know 
the directionality of where the start and the finish was on some point. So, uh, you know, when you're looking at science fiction, any kind of fiction, it's, it's about the characters, it's about the narrative and so on. And so there are lots of things about human nature that don't change over time. And those are the things that we all recognize as being true, regardless of whether we're reading science fiction from 90 years ago or from 90 years from today. But you're right, like the rest of it, the technology is very unpredictable. So the things that this science writer, science fiction writer thought would be true in 100 years you know, totally off on those things. But that's fine because technology is really hard to predict. But human nature is really easy to predict. People are the same all around the world. You put them in the same situations, they behave basically the same way. Yes and no. <laughs> that's as true as it isn't, the, in the, my opinion. The differences, the differences come from culture, but there are right. universals as well. Yeah, oh, right? absolutely, absolutely. Um, there are these wonderful studies about... And there's outliers, and often those outliers prove the rule. Yeah, there's yes. Science has so a lot let, of things to say about this. Let me give you an this. example. So it's like uh, one of my favorite ones is so you know t testosterone is typically the, whichever um, whichever gender has the, the most starting state of testosterone is going to be the most aggressive one. But it's not as it's not as simple as just saying testosterone is causing uh, aggression. But but let's just for now let's uh, let's with it's, this it's, very more, it's more complicated than that it's always more complicated so let's just in biology very simple very very simple uh, picture for now to to convey this information and uh and understand that there's all sorts of noise out there that it's going to rip it all apart um but but then so so then you have like a um you have a primate that go so males have this testosterone and then you have primates that go and stand up at the edge of like there's an invading troop and they stand up and then they they show off their penises and then and then the primates from afar can count and go like okay there's there's those there's that number of those aggressive gender over there so do some calculation can we take them is it worth the risk how much resources over there right and so that's that's what the penis uh, that's the signal that the penis is signaling in that particular case and that the re receiver is getting but then you can flip it and it kind of proves the rule so there's hyenas that have the opposite where where the females have um uh, are are the aggressive ones and so the the females will go and like pick on a male and the male will instead flip over and show its penis to be like hey don't hurt me look i'm one of these weak little things that's defenseless and so the context is very very important but the formula is sort of the same so the nature of it is yeah there is this through line but the context is so what, what i would say is that <clears throat> the thing that's fundamental here is that is that there is aggression mm -hmm. and how it's played out who's doing it why right. they're doing it how they do it Th those things are variables those things change right but the universal is that there is aggression there is power dynamics and that, yeah. that structures the society whether it's an animal society or human society so big bang happens this energy there's this wild inflation it's like when you make a new connection and you get all excited about it <gasps> and a lot of times that aha moment turns out to be garbage and it's like not not the best universe of an idea that you could have 
but at the time it might there's this uni, there's this huge inflation period of growth and then and then it kind of like is moving very rapidly and and starts to even out and plateau and then like these little pieces start coming together and then they start forming more complicated ideas and then more complicated and and they start organizing and also sometimes destroying themselves and reorganizing and so here now here we are on this planet of an idea when we know there's a lot of other ideas out there bigger ideas some of them we can see kind of and, and model others that we don't have access to but we can also kind of look into the past and into the past to see far enough back you also have to create models to see these little bits of fragments of ideas that you didn't have and and now now uh <laughs> i think what you just said there is interesting because you're describing models in a in a in a um, in a way that that is we all we all use models to try to understand how things fit together, right? So if we're looking back in the past, you don't just see the past in perfect detail. You don't have to live it or experience it. Um, so you have to make inferences. You have to make educated yeah. guesses. Like, well, if this is true and that's true, then these two things probably mean this third thing is true. And that's a, a mental model that we're building to try to make a guess about something we haven't seen. That's exactly what information theory is about. It says, I, you received you know, this beep and that bop, but you didn't receive the boohoo in the middle. Yeah. But if you receive the beep and the bop, you can infer that there was something missing. You can correct the error. And the receiver, when the message is received, oh, doesn't get all the bits, but they have to make these educated guesses about what was missing and then reconstruct a good model of what the message was. Mm. And so when we're looking at the past, we get a very noisy, very corrupted signal about what was going on back then. And we use models today based on how physics works and how society works and things we know about the past from other sources in order to make these educated guesses. We are the receiver in the future of a signal sent from the past that was corrupted by time. Right, right. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. And we are sending signals into the future today. Yeah. <laughs> which that will be the same thing. Well, they'll be recorded much more accurately because we have digital technology now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so uh, someone a thousand years from now could listen to this podcast as, you know, part of a class project on ancient archaeological podcast stuff. And it should be as clear in a thousand years as it is today. And who knows how fast things will start moving, which might this this idea might seem uh confusing at first and or might be like mind-blowing and hard to obtain at first this idea that's coming through and within a month's time maybe it will be so boring because everyone already knows exactly what we we're talking about so well that that they understand it clearly and they see all of the many ways in which we were wrong and all of our biases and everything else that created that chaos. And uh, I mean, I guess I think the point that I'm trying to make is that there's some some sort of a misunderstanding that that we often, because of where we are in time, which is the present, we have this illusion of 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 explanatory depth, I guess, which is that we we think this beep in the boop is the is the signal but really it's just a picture of what the signal looks like in this steady state it's not missing or it's it's not 
that's not and if you're just looking at the beep and the boop you're not understanding the context of the past and you're not and you're not seeing the formula that created that answer in that state yeah i i would say that that you know this hypothetical archaeology student a thousand years listening to our podcast hello um they they may understand the words that we're saying uh they may have a good translation device google translate may still exist or something else but they may not understand who justin bieber is they may understand some of the other references that are to, to things that that make sense to people in the present but that information will be lost in the future and the the difficulty of interpreting what it is we're talking about why we're talking that will require additional models that they'll have to construct and i think the one thing that will make it challenging for those future archaeologists is that there's so much information being recorded now that that current archaeologists when they look back at at um uh you know artifacts from from 100 or well typically more than 100 a thousand years ago or more they're trying to piece together this mystery using almost no information and so it's it's like it was 200 years ago. It's a very information poor environment. Whereas in a thousand years, they'll have a perfect record of all of Twitter, and how will they make sense of that? I don't know. I mean, we have a hard time making sense of Twitter today. Yeah. But they're going to have a, this perfect record, and that implies that they're going to have likely uh, sort of a, a cacophony of information, too much information to make sense of of uh, of the current moment. The difference will be they'll have more time to make sense of it, right? For us, we need to make sense of it like right now, and it's confusing. Yeah. But in a thousand years, they'll have, you know, they'll be write many dissertations on right. you know, 2017. But think about what the past is kind of trying to tell us. T take away all of the noise, all the biases, all of the prejudice, and think about what the past, so this future is coming at you, if you're if you're this person that's a little behind on on this uh on this Venn diagram on on and the that the um present of the culture you're falling behind on and now this future is overwhelming and hard to comprehend but you know it's coming at you and now it's like a threat to you and you might be trying to communicate it with it in a way that you don't even understand and you might be yelling and sounding like a lunatic you might be yelling learn to speak the language and and that people are discounting <laughs> you and thinking like oh that person's just dumb and they're just lost but really it's this collect a collection of supercomputer that's saying something that is more nuanced then we can understand just yet. There, there's plenty of things that that are signals that are come from the past that are they're they're telling us these are, these are traditions and social norms. Right. These these ways that we do things that have been around for a while, like that's the past speaking to us. In fact, that's the past sort of shaping how we behave, and that's that's kind of cool. But there are some traditions that it's worth getting rid of. Right. For instance, right. So so we in the in the present can make a choice about which of these signals we pay attention to and preserve, and which we choose to get rid of. Which what which ones, not get rid of. Which ones we've outgrown, perhaps. Sure. That's a that's a perfectly good word. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, so for instance, this notion of liberalism in in politics and society, um, liberalism with a little L, 
uh, is this notion that things get better over time. And certainly that has been true. More people live in democracies today than they did 100 years ago. Um, democracies are usually pretty good for people's quality of life. Uh, people live longer. They get sick less often. We have better medicines. All of these things are, are good. The general trends you know, make it look like the future, if they continue, will be better than the past. So if you took somebody from 100 years ago and transplanted them to today, their mind would be blown in so many different ways. But one of the things that will blow their mind the most is, is how good we have it. The fact that child mortality is very, very low in Western and uh, in, in modern countries and, and developed countries. Um, the mortality rate for, for childbirth for mothers themselves are also very, very low. But these things were scourges back then. If, before antibiotics, if you got a, a cut, you could die from it. And so people could be would be very nervous about working with their hands in manual labor environments because it was just dangerous. You'd get a, a bacterial infection and you could die. Whereas today, you just go get some antibiotics and you're fine. And so, so many things have changed so much in the past 100 years that I think that that those someone you know moving forward from 100 years ago um, would be just amazed at how rich and and um, uh, comforted we are. But think about how hard it is to adapt to that progress when you have been conditioned throughout there's this this nature that you have evolved you have it in your all of your ancestors had this formula if you see energy grab it and eat as much as you can and now all of a sudden there's this abundance of energy and you're gobbling it up so fast because that's what you're trained to do. You didn't have an off switch. You didn't have never in the past. Did you stop using this energy or moderate your energy use? And now you're filling up so fast. You're about to explode. That's right. The, it, it, there's two things I want to say here. One is about the biology, which is that, that our genes, hum, human genomes, it's thought have essentially a pattern that was useful in the past, which was to, you know, eat food all the time because there wasn't much of it. And if a famine came, you, you better be fat enough to get through it. Um, and that in the modern world, we have changed our environment so that that, that gene doesn't operate in the right way anymore. It makes us overeat. Uh, because we live in an environment with an abundance of food. It's easy to find food anywhere you want to go, essentially, um, from a societal level. Um, so, so this sort of maladaptation of, of a piece of information that was useful in the past that is now no longer useful today on the biological side. But you can also think about it on the social side, too, that, you know, 100, 200 years ago, we lived in an information-poor environment. We were desperate for information. So we we would... We would attend to anything that seemed like it was novel and, and interesting and useful because there was so little of it. We were always starved for new news. But today we are drowning in new news. It's just like we're drowning in this high calorie food. And so we have to build up new habits, new ways of being disciplined in order to say, I'm not going to eat that Twinkie. I had one yesterday. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm not going to read the newspaper today. I read it yesterday. And so so we have to change the way we act because the environment has changed. We have changed the environment. Um, yeah. So, but, and then look at the messages and then change the various. So like, instead of saying you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes you'll get what you need. What, what if instead, and then if you kind of flip that around, if, if then, then if you're misinterpreting, um, like if you're getting too much of your want, you need to stop 
getting <laughs> like like the it's somehow switch I, i'm not sure how to articulate it perfectly i'm like just riffing right now but. it's important to find a balance that works yeah. for you right that it like you know right too balance. much of anything is not good right and and in the context of information the same thing is true if, if you're drowning in information all the time that can be too much of a good thing. And as a result, you won't be able to attend to the things that are actually important in the, in the, in the noise around you. If you spend, you know, 15 hours on YouTube watching stuff, like you won't have written a, a chapter in a book you're working on or something like that. Also, if you're just gobbling up information faster than you can digest it, then you're not going to be able to integrate it in any meaningful way. And I think that integration is really key, that that because we live in what some people refer to now as an attention economy, meaning that the scarce resource is not information anymore. It's not goods in many ways. The scarce resource is attention. You can only attend to a finite number of things in a given day. That if you if you binge on one channel of information, you're implicitly ignoring all the other information around you and that it's more important to sample and to then integrate that information so you can get a good picture of what's going on. The, the, the worst thing to do in this information-rich environment is to only eat Twinkies. Instead, you should have a balanced diet. Right. So... In information Twinkies, whatever that is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have some ideas. Um, I mean, there's there's packets of information, and some of them are large, and some of them are small, and some of them are trying to fit through narrow spaces. Some um, of them are nutritious, and some of them are, are trash. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> junk food. Um, information junk food. Yeah, yeah. Um, we should have nutritional labels on on uh, <laughs> newspapers and, and TV and podcasts, shows. Perhaps. And podcasts, uh, And the internet. That would be <laughs> like before people tune into Alex jones there has to be a warning label yes. this is for entertainment purposes only use in moderation that's right this is this is full of sugar it will make you sick if you have it too much it seems of real fun but eventually it will start diluting your view of reality um so so now we so people are uh listening to this the masses by this time um and and then they're and then they're like at first they're like i don't understand all that and then they but they understand more now at the end of this than they did at the beginning so they're gonna go back and listen again and then it changed because it's actually not a loop at all it's a spiral coming at them influencing them that they're changing somehow even though it's the same exact message that they're changing it through re-listening it, through reappraisal in their own head. It's this message that now lives in their own head. And then eventually, they're going to be bored to death. And they're going to want to pursue, uh, the, the, get new information, and get the future of, of what we have built with this information so so if this is a nice little foundation for this little frame frame of time this little sliver of time this is this tiny little foundation that is fragile and full of errors and they want to build upon it and maybe change it and see where uh, where everything went wrong do you have any you mentioned a book earlier do you have any I would, I'd recommend two books. Um, one is this new biography about Claude Shannon, who's the father of information theory. He, he is the reason computers work today. The reason network 
networking works and all that. Um, and that book is called um, A Mind at Play, and it's it's really wonderful. Um, the other book I would recommend uh, is by James Gleick. It's called The Information, um, and it's about um, how uh, sort of the, the grand arc of technological development and how that has led us to this time in which we are drowning in information around us. And why not read his book Chaos as well to understand the, all the noise? Chaos is an excellent book as well. Yeah. And, and genius about Richard Feynman if you like physics too. Hmm. Lots of good books. All right. Well, thank you, Aaron Closet, for joining me. Thanks for having me. Closet is pronounced Closet, right? Just closet. Closet. See, I, I've just got to be hyper aware that I'm chuck full of errors and flaws. Aaron Closet, uh, thank you for joining me. This is fantastic. Thanks we for went for me. it. All right. Awesome. Thank you, listeners. Alright everybody, I need you to do something for me. I need you to go to Ramin Nazer, R-A-M-I-N-N-A-Z-E-R dot com. You need to check out his artwork. And he has a new book, Cave Paintings for Future People. I really don't need to sell you on Ramin if you've already checked out his Instagram or Twitter account and are following him on there. He's cranking out a new drawing like every day. It's unbelievable. And now you can see 384 wonderful... He has a way of taking insanely complex ideas, and I'm going to be describing his art in such a flawed way, but uh, he takes these complex, interesting, heady ideas that take me entire podcast to try to articulate and then he turns them into this raw, wonderful cartoon illustration that is cool and silly and abstract and petty all at the same time. One of the most talented artists that I have ever had the pleasure of knowing. So please check out Cave Paintings for Future People, available today. No longer a preview. And uh, this is, you can order it right now, have it in your hands very soon. I'm not going to tell you how long it takes to be delivered because that's the thing that I don't know. Um, and check out the Jimmy Thrill podcast. And if you're getting into podcasting yourself, you might want to hit up Jimmy, see if he has the time to edit your podcast. And because he's amazing at it, check out the Laughable app. If you aren't listening to your comedy podcast on Laughable app, well, what the heck are you doing? Owning an Android phone and patiently waiting? Good for you. And if you are, sign up for the email list so you can be notified when that is available on Android. And But if you have an iPhone, you should be getting downloading the Laughable app today, even if you don't use it every single time. Maybe just dip your toes in. Just have a little look-see. See what you think of it. I think it's pretty slick. So... Check those out, and I will see you guys next week. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, I forgot to say this last week. How did I forget about my favorites? My favorite people. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end.
let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island yeah. and he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Well, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein, and I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you 